the one and only Cliff Richard and the Shannon. Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to Episode 7 of the We Say Yeah Podcast, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP released by Cliff and the Shads in chronological order. Or at least we try to. This month we'll be looking at four singles released between July and November 1960. But there was an album, a pretty important album, that came out in the middle of all that, and we'll get to that album in the next episode. Before we welcome this month's returning guest, Vic Rust, author of the Cliff Richard Recording Catalog and the Shadows Recording Catalog, I want to share some feedback from our last episode where Mark Cunningham and myself discussed uh, our favorite books about Cliff Richard and the Shadows and our hopes for Cliff's recording career in the future over on the We Say Yeah Facebook page, which, by the way, you really should like and follow because we post a lot of nifty photos and memorabilia over there, all tied into the episode, so it's a lot of fun. Tim Cooper posted a photo of what I can only call his Cliff Corner, or at least the Cliff Corner of his bookcase. Maybe he's got more that's not in the picture, and it leaves me envious because he's got more Cliff books than I do. He writes, Enjoyed your latest podcast. Think I would probably have chosen the same books that you guys did. Admittedly, haven't read them for some years, so maybe a reread is in order. I went to a signing of the Recording Sessions book when it first came out, getting my copy signed by Peter Lurie and Nigel Goodall. The Vic Rust book I leave on my coffee table and pick up now and again. Lots of useful info there about the songs and the musicians involved in the recordings. Picture of my collection of Cliff books where you see two or more copies. It's either one that's been autographed or a different edition slash pressing. Tim, I hope you mention me in your will. That's all I have to say about that. Also, last month, we talked about the Cliff Richard appreciation thread over on the Steve Hoffman forums, where a, quote, well-known member who calls himself Running Hatter wrote this. Just listen to the latest episode of the excellent We Say Yeah podcast. Thank you, Running Hatter. Nice to hear the Steve Hoffman Cliff Richard appreciation thread get a mention. Like the idea of lifting the original vocals and doing a traditional Christmas album. As for recording new material moving forward, I think Cliff should take a leaf out of the Johnny Cash book and record songs suitable to his voice with a top-notch producer. Not love songs, but songs of reflection, regret, and spiritual songs. You know, that would be really interesting. And I love how we all have these ideas of what and how Cliff should record. I'm sure if Cliff ever hears these programs, he's going to think to himself, these guys would have me working 24 hours a day. Do I at least get a weekend off? Got to play some tennis. I also want to shout out Cheshire Cat and New Electric Muse over on that thread as well. And finally, Amet wrote us an email at podcast at gmail.com. And let's hear what Ahmet has to say. He says, I live in Istanbul. The first time I became acquainted with the band was in the early 60s when a friend of mine sold me the album The Shadows. From then on, they were my favorite. In those days, there was no internet, no social media, scarce foreign news. We were very happy when news about the band and Cliff Richard was posted in the newspapers. Then came the movie The Young Ones. It was summer when it began to be shown in theaters. There was an open-air summer movie theater nearby, and its operator was a friend of mine. So we watched the movie with great pleasure. 
I still remember the scene where they played the Savage with red Stratocasters. Next day, I asked my operator friend whether he would cut a frame from the reels that show a close-up of Hank Marvin and the red Stratocaster. He complied, and I saved that frame for years. Now it's all different. It's very easy to listen or watch anything one desires. Thank you and regards. That's coming from Ahmet. Thank you so much. You know, first of all, I love hearing everyone's stories of how they discovered Cliff Richard in the Shadows. And Ahmed and I had some great exchanges about how he views the Shadows recording uh, career and the different eras, and it's been a lot of fun. So keep that stuff coming. Send me an email at podcast at gmail.com, and I'll read it on uh, the next program. All right. This month, we're finally getting around to discussing Apache by the Shadows with our guest, Vic Rust. For the first time, we're going to talk about the Shadows as much as we've been talking about Cliff. In fact, I was thinking of using the subheading for this episode, The Rise of the Shadows. But then I started thinking, boy, The Rise of the Shadows sounds like a Star Wars movie or something. So let's just call this what I call everything that we do here on the program, The Hidden History of Rock and Roll. Here's the next four singles featuring Apache with our guest, Vic Rust. Ladies and gentlemen, we are witnessing a tense moment in history. Geronimo, last of the great Apache chiefs, is about to surrender to Lieutenant Colonel Beck of the United States Cavalry. But in fact, it is just the beginning, for this is the opening of one of the screen's most exciting achievements, as Burt Lancaster plays Maasai in Apache. You know, in previous episodes of the podcast, when we would talk about early records by the Shadows, like Saturday Dance and Feeling Fine, the guests and I would say something along the lines of, yeah, this is all right. You know, these Shadow songs are good for what they are, but I mean, they're not terribly impressive. Well, all of that changes as of right now, because we're going to talk about Apache, which puts the Shadows on the map as a musical force to be reckoned with in their own right, apart from Cliff. And the arrangements and the overall sound of the shadows improves dramatically. It's almost like a light switch being flicked. The shadows suddenly come to the fore. So Apache, which is one of the most important records ever made, reaches number one. It was recorded on June 17th, 1960, and it was written by Jerry Lorden. What can you tell us about Jerry Lorden? Uh, Jerry Lorden is... A songwriter, and he did a lot of work. He also wrote stuff for, for Cliff later on in the 60s, as, as well as a few more numbers for The Shadows and, and a number of other people. And also his uh, wife, uh, Petrina, who he married in 1963, she also wrote songs which The Shadows and also Cliff um, recorded oh. as well. And I think Jerry played this song for Hank and Bruce on the tour bus, right? Isn't that the story? Yes, it is, yeah. But there was a competing version released at exactly the same time by guitar virtuoso Burt Whedon, who wrote the famous guitar tutorial Play in a Day, which seemingly every British guitarist cut their teeth on. And despite his reputation, his version, it just doesn't pack the punch that the Shadows version does. Thank you. 
And then meanwhile in America, Danish guitarist Jorgen Ingman covers the song in late 1960, and he releases his version on the Atco label in the U.S., and that soars to number two. Boy, Cliff and the Shadows can't catch a break in the U.S. Their thunder is always constantly being stolen by someone either covering their songs or record labels not promoting them correctly and all sorts of crazy stuff. But that version just seems, I don't know, kind of anemic. Yes, there were competing records out. Some of them are really quite strange. Once you've listened to the Shadows version, that is the pinnacle, I think, of of the performance of Apache. And and the others are kind of faint imitations, really. And I I think probably they would have thought, I wish we'd done it like the Shadows had done it. So Apache goes to number one, and it actually knocks Cliff off the top spot. Uh, Please Don't Tease was uh, number one, then Apache became number one, and then Please Don't Tease came back. And yet, in a way, Cliff is competing with himself because Cliff plays on the record, right? He does, yes. Uh, Uncredited in in nearly every single instance where this has been released. But yes, he kicks it all off with the uh, Chinese drums at the beginning, the, the thump, 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 thump. Do you think having Cliff play on the record was maybe Nori Paramore's safety net if the song didn't take off? Maybe a bit of a marketing strategy like, hey, you know, Cliff is actually on this record and and maybe people would go out and buy it if it hadn't, you know, achieved uh, success on its own? I'm not sure because from what I've seen, uh, there wasn't an awful lot of publicity about that. Um, and I know that uh, Cliff was was very clear that he wanted the Shadows to do their own spots when they were in theatres and, and, and so on. So it, it wasn't a case of trying to prevent them stealing his thunder. At least I don't think that's, that's the case. Um, and actually, the, the recording session which had Apache and Quatermaster's Stores, which was the B-side to, to, to Apache, didn't have any other cliff recordings being done at the same time so he actually specifically came in or was around and just got involved so flipping go ahead sorry i was just about to say that uh, it also shows with with apache is is uh, the shadows had a real love of of western films so as you know later on they're, they're recording things like the theme from shane and mustang and so on so they have a real love for western so it fits in nicely with what they were trying to achieve um, it's also worth noting that they really wanted to be a vocal group uh, more than an instrumental group. But it, it seemed to be almost ironic in a way that, that they had their most significant success as, as a unit themselves doing instrumentals. 
Yeah, it works out perfectly because the Shadows are collaborating with Cliff and they're writing songs for him, so he's really taking over the vocal responsibilities there. They have their instrumental career going. Of course, down the line, the Shadows would have some some great vocal records. And you mentioned the flip side earlier. It's a funny thing. On certain CDs, this is listed as Quatermaster's Stores, which is the actual title. And then on some, it's listed as Quartermaster's Stores. Yes. Quatermass was a... British science fiction program, wasn't it? Quite a mass in the pit, yes. It was, a, it was the, probably the most popular television show of that time. It's a, a sci-fi thing, it's, um, and, and it's about Professor Quatermass. And this is Professor Quatermass, Mrs. Large, Mr. Large. How do you do? Oh, Professor? Perhaps I better explain. I'm a scientist. Mr. Large, I wonder if you'll tell me about the object you found yesterday. It also shows the Shadow's love of punning titles. Mm. You know, like um, the take on Stars Fell on Alabama later in there, they changed it to Stars Fell on Stockton, which is a, um, a northern <laughs> city here in the UK. They love playing with these titles. So it, it, this fits in quite well. But yes, it is properly the traditional song of Quartermaster Stores, which they've just changed the title. And Quartermaster Stores, this is a, a, an army tune. Yes, and at right? the time, at the end of the 50s, all young men, unless they had some medical reason why not, uh, had to do national service by law, which meant that they had to spend months doing training in, in some form of the armed services. So the reason why they wanted to do, or Norrie Paramore wanted to do Quartermaster Stores or Quartermaster Stores, uh, it was because they thought people coming out of national service, they would have been singing this occasionally with lewd lyrics, I have to say. <laughs> um, but they would be very familiar with it. And with a rocked up version, they, they would be um, more inclined to buy the record. There was bread, bread. Just like lumps of lead in the store. In the store. In the store. In the store. There were buns, buns, bullets for the guns. In the quartermaster's store. Of course, we have the same uh, situation that we had with Move It. It's the apocryphal suggestion that actually Norrie Paramore took the two sides back to his daughters, played it. He wanted Quatermaster stores, and they said, no, 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 Apache. That isn't actually true, I do not believe. I think it's uh, far more likely that the uh, Saturday Club producer, the BBC Radio, Jimmy Grant, was the one that said, you know, Apache is going to get more airplay. At this point, I'm beginning to wonder if Nori Paramore ever played anything for his daughter. <laughs> yeah. I think I think he probably did, you know, say, hey, have a listen to this. But he wouldn't have been, I'm going to throw it open to you, you tell me what we need to do. I'd, I'd be very surprised if that was the case, because he has to go via the market rather than what his daughters say. Exactly. You know, you mentioned that sense of humor that the Shadows have, certainly with their punning titles. That's something that I don't think gets enough attention. In a similar way to the Beatles, who were known for their sense of humor, the Shadows had maybe even a more bizarre sense of humor. I watched, 
I, I guess it's a short film they did called Rhythm and Greens. Rhythm and Greens, yeah. Right, which is sort of like the Shadows version of Magical Mystery Tour or something. I mean, it's so strange. Yes, but yes. Uh, I, I, I do like that film. <laughs> yeah, it's really enjoyable. It's sort of like the history of civilization with the Shadows soundtrack. Yes. So we're going to move on to the second single that we'll talk about today. And this this is another big one, Cliff Richard and the Shadows with Nine Times Out of Ten. Written by Otis Blackwell and somebody named Walden's Hall. And because Otis Blackwell's involved, I'm wondering, was this originally intended for Elvis? Well, don't try to fire the gun, baby, it ain't no use. You're gonna find out I'm stopping as a dog on mule. Nine times out of ten, I try to kiss you. And I ain't just nine times again oh, And if I miss the nine times that I've tried oh, baby I've been my life I'll get you on number ten It's certainly a possibility. I haven't been able to find anything to confirm that for sure. But yes, I mean, there, there would have been a number of American stars who would have probably been lined up with the possibility of, of performing this because it is much more of an American feel to uh, the performance of this song. Well, it was recorded on March 15th, 1960, released on September 16th, 1960. The song went to number three, and this was part of that event held at Abbey Road Studios where 200 fans were invited to, I guess, listen to a dozen songs or so and choose uh, the next single. Please don't tease one, but nine times out of ten was one of those. It was actually the uh, EMI headquarters in Manchester Square in London. Ah, okay. Um, But yes, it's down to EMI. Uh, but yes, it came third. You know, I'm surprised that's not done more often. It just seems like a really smart thing to do, to invite your fans to a listening party and have them pick the next singles. I mean, it almost seems like a no-brainer. I, I don't know why that's not done anymore. But I love this song. This is one of my all-time favorite Cliff Richard and the Shadows recordings. It's one of mine as well. And the, the whole period of this, both um, the Shadows on their own and also backing Cliff, They've actually found what is often referred to as that sound, and and it's quintessentially Cliff and the Shadows, and I, I think it's wonderful. I mean, you only have to listen to through all of these these songs that we're talking about today. It's well worth listening out, especially for Bruce Welsh's rhythm guitar, because it is something special. And also, it's worth noting that at this time, Cliff and the Shadows had a run of, um, or. Cliff on his own on, on some of the singles, but um, primarily with uh, Shadows backing him, um, had a run of 25 top 10 singles, of which this was a sixth. So he was doing something right, for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, I've got a personal connection to this song because it's track one on 1984's Cliff in the 60s compilation put out by EMI's Music for Pleasure label. And as I mentioned way back on the first episode of this podcast, it was the second Cliff Richard cassette I ever bought, and I bought it in New York. And you know, it's a funny thing. Everywhere I go, and I, I loiter in record stores, and I go to record conventions here in the States, and it's not uncommon to find like a, a Cliff Richard album or a Cliff Richard single. And I'm beginning to think that Cliff is the most famous, unfamous person in the United States. You know what yeah, I mean? So- because, I, I think you're right. Because even though he only had a few big hits here in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, his global 
celebrity and popularity is such that it just can't help but seep into uh, pop culture. Yes, seep into the consciousness. So flipping this record over, we have a song written by Bruce Welch called Thinking of Our Love. To me, this is in the same vein as Fall in Love with You or Where is My Heart. And, you know, I was trying to explain to another guest what it is about this particular sound, this softer sound that appeals to me. And I couldn't quite think of the word, but in listening to this, I think I've got it. There's an intimacy. Yes. It's like a, a musical whisper. You know, it's like as if Cliff and the Shadows are passing along a secret to you. I think that's very well put. I, I, th- I think it is a lovely song. It shows the Shadows starting to write more and different types of styles of song uh, rather than just the rocky little numbers, which they were uh, very good at. And as a ballad, I, I think it also shows Cliff maturing as a singer as I previously mentioned, I think this is why he had such a run of, of uh, success in the charts from, from 1960 onwards uh, up until about 1965, I think it is. Um, it's just consistently getting top 10 records. And I think it's also worth noting that thinking of our love would have made a perfect single in its own right, I believe. And Bruce Welch, again, is the author of the next number one, a song called I Love You. Your love means more to me than all the apples hanging on a tree And like those apples, our love will grow because I, I love you Your love means more to me than all the fishes swimming in the sea And like those fishes, my heart begins to swim because I, I love you The song was recorded on September 9th, 1960, released as a single on December 1st, 1960. I Love You is a jaunty song. It has elements of the Everly Brothers in there. Of course, there have been other songs called I Love You before. Frank Sinatra has a song called I Love You. Yes. Um, This reminds me a bit of Living Doll, and I guess it should because Bruce had a big hand in arranging Living Doll. Yes. Again, I think it's Cliff and, and the Shadows actually going off in a slightly different direction from what they've, they've done previously as well. Um, and I do think it's a lovely song. It's a lovely sentiment and it's a happy um, performance. It's, it, I, I think it's brilliant. I did read an interview with Bruce where he was sort of rolling his eyes over some of the lyrics in the song. You know, your love is like an apple hanging from a tree and everything. But I would just remind him that Love Me Do isn't Shakespeare either. You know, exactly. <laughs> and it worked. It matches the lilting uh, melody and, and, and the beautiful harmonies. So I don't really have a problem with that at all. Uh, just one more thing about uh, I Love You. It's, it's, it's worth pointing out that um, that was Cliff's first Christmas number one in this country, in the UK. 
Um, and while he has a reputation for churning out Christmas uh, music every year, that's not actually the case uh, because his next Christmas number one would have to wait until 1988. Yeah, that's a long so time. That's a while to wait. <laughs> yeah. Now, the flip side, we have Tepper and Bennett once again writing for Cliff. It's a song called D in Love, recorded at the same session. Smarty cat, you're the teacher's pet. You got brains that you ain't used yet. You can name every president. Yes, in school, you're a hundred percent. But when the lights are low, zero, you get D. D in love. Here's your report card kissing. You gotta practice nightly a hugging. You gotta squeeze more tightly. I recommend this remedy. Lots and lots and lots and lots. I love this track. You know, it didn't do much for me at first, but I heard it in the context of the Best of the Rock and Roll Pioneers compilation a few years ago, and for some reason, it just jumped out at me, and I rediscovered it. Now. I love it. From this era, which, you know, is just an embarrassment of riches, this is one of my favorites. I don't know if this kind of thing would fly today, you know, a guy grading uh, his girlfriend on uh, her skills <clears throat> in canoodling, but uh, I, I love it. And one, one of the things that I, I think every time I listen to, to, to these sort of songs, I mean, apart from the fact that it's about um, uh, school and uh, Cliff was rising 20 at this, at this point, so the... the choice of song where they mention school and all that kind of stuff it starts to diminish after this point. Um, I'm always slightly amused, aggrieved maybe, that uh, it's uh, suggested that academic success automatically means you're a failure in love. <laughs> uh, and the last single we'll touch upon today is it's The Shadows Again and it's Man of Mystery written by Michael Carr, and the reason it's written by Michael Carr is this is the theme song to, it's, is it a series of films or... Uh, it's a series of films based on uh, novels by Edgar Wallace. It's called right. Edgar Wallace uh, Mysteries, or I, I believe in America it was called the Edgar Wallace Mystery Theatre or some such title. Absolutely love this track. For me, this is in my top five Shadows recordings ever. I love Hank's guitar here. And when I hear this song, and I think about what the John Barry 7 was doing around this time, yes. and I feel like this track is the template for the sound, the guitar sound, of 
the spy movie and TV theme song genre. I feel like it's all here. This is the beginning of it. I think you're right. I was going to make that exact same point. Um, and it's unmistakably um, the shadows again. Uh, you, you can't can't miss who it is. And it grabs you right from the start with Hank's plaintive note at the beginning and also at the end, kind of bookending the, 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 the tune. And despite my just comparing Man of Mystery to the 60s spy craze, this track, in fact, all of the Shadows tracks we've played today, don't sound dated to me. They almost sound like they exist in their own universe, which is always contemporary. I agree. And I, I, I think that's, again, part of the appeal and part of the magic that they kind of latched onto at the beginning of the 60s and, and uh, kept on through the rest of their career. They found some kind of alchemy that uh, really worked and they built on. And it still sounds fresh and entertaining each time you listen to it, even though you might be very, very familiar with the tunes, you still want to listen to it. And the flip side is a song called The Stranger. I, I looked and I don't think it has anything to do with the Orson Welles movie, but at this point, it doesn't. I, okay, I keep thinking the shadows are drawing from uh, film and television. But I, I think this actually has a little bit of an Apache type of sound to it. It's written by Bill Crompton and Morgan Thunderbolt, I think, right? Jones. Uh, thun- Thunderclap Jones. Thunderclap, right. No relation to Thunderclap Newman. Right. And uh, it's a B-side. It's not as strong as Man of Mystery. They obviously made the right choice. It, it was actually a double A-side. Um, oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the uh, Man of Mystery was the one that was pushed because that was more familiar from, from the television. I know I probably sound like a broken record at this point, but Nori Paramore is such a great producer. I mean, these are produced so well. They sound so good. They're produced so well, and and, and actually it's worth um, highlighting the inputs of uh, Malcolm Addy, who was the engineer on these early recordings. Uh, you might be interested to know that, that um, the working title of A Stranger was Paleface. Oh, okay. No relation to the Bob Hope movie, I'm sure. Uh, anything you want to uh, to add to wrap it up here today? Uh, no, it's, it's worth looking at uh, these four singles um, because obviously Cliff and the Shads re-recorded a lot of numbers for their reunited album in 2009. Uh, so both Nine Times Out of Ten and I Love You were re-recorded for Reunited. And also The Shadows re-recorded a number of their titles as well for their, at their very best album in 1989, which they, uh, because they changed the label to Polydor from EMI, um, they had felt that to do a best of type album release, they were going to have to re-record them. So they re-recorded The Stranger, Man of Mystery and Apache. And I forgot to mention that Cliff occasionally will bring out D in Love as a song to perform live. Well, when I interviewed him for, for the last edition of, of, of the book, um, I, I was saying that, that how, how um, strong a lot of his B-sides are, and, and, and B-sides being what they are, 
generally get lost um, because of what's on the A-side or, or associated LP that might be coming out. Um, and he said uh, that he agreed that he had got a, a lot of um, very good B-sides. And, and one of the things that he might consider doing, obviously doing some of the, the, the big numbers like um, uh, Living Doll and Young Ones and so on, but actually focus on performing a lot of these B-sides that, that rarely get an airing which is why he did Marmaduke in the, in the most recent UK tour. Right. Yeah, so that could be interesting if he, if he uh, follows that um, to its uh, logical conclusion and, and just uh, brings out all these wonderful B-sides that's, um, the, the, that uh, he's recorded. Yeah, we could see Cliff for his 82nd birthday tour doing Thinking of Our Love, you know. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. Right. That would be wonderful. So where could people go to get your book, The Cliff Richard Recording Catalogue? The easiest place to go, go to is the Leo's Den, um, which is a repository for everything Cliff and Shads. And you can get to it by going to leosden, all one word, .co.uk. Well, I hope you all enjoyed this month's discussion with Vic Rust, and as a postscript to this episode, just after we recorded, Vic reminded me that Cliff had written a song on his own for organist Cherry Wayner and The Hunters. Now, Cherry Wayner was part of Lord Rockingham's Eleven on the Oh Boy show, and she had some solo singles. In fact, on YouTube, you can see Cherry Wayner performing with Cliff. Not this song, though. The song is called Happy Like a Bell, Ding Dong. It was recorded on October 3rd, 1960, and released on October 28th. Let's give it a listen. I'm happy like a bell, ding dong, never felt so well, ding dong. Happy like a bell since I fell in love with you, ding dong, since our first Yeah, Vic and I are in agreement. Uh, it's a novelty, uh, you know. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, a little addendum to uh, that discussion. Next month, the Me and My Shadows LP. We'll get into it. Remember, we say yeah podcast at gmail.com is our email. Join us over on uh, the We Say Yeah Facebook page and leave us a review won't you over on apple podcasts a five-star review that would be great hey, a four-star three-star let's not get any lower than three stars well it's up to you anyway we say yeah over on uh, apple podcast and google too i didn't even know we were on google podcasts but i guess we are anyway wherever you find us that's the right place and thanks for listening we say yeah. we say yeah. we say yeah.